Thank you, Leora and Bill and Amanda. Woo, okay, now we're going to do a little. All right, get ourselves going. Yes! Woohoo! <laughs> so um, I want to remind you of Nasruddin. Nasruddin is a being of crazy wisdom. Uh, often in the Sufi tradition, stories are told about Nasruddin, but he spills over into other sacred traditions too. So Nasruddin was on a train, and the conductor came by to pick up the tickets, but he couldn't find his. And so he looked in his pants pockets, he looked in his briefcase, he looked in his suitcases, but he could not find the ticket. And finally the conductor said, Nasruddin, I know you've got your ticket. Most people keep theirs in their top left-hand coat pocket. Why don't you look there? And as Rudin said, don't even mention it. If it's not there, I have no hope. <laughs> and I thought, what a funny thing. He's talking about how uh, uh, he doesn't want to look in the last possible place because if it's not there, he has no hope. But Coleman Barks, who is a Sufi and is uh, in that tradition of devotion and love and passion, says that the underlying message of that story is if it's not in your heart, you have no hope. So there's a deeper message underneath the joke, which is that this is the place to start. This is the place to begin. And in that Sufi tradition, Rumi says, the heart is nothing but the sea of light, the place of the vision of God. So the vision of God for our lives doesn't come through our intellect. It comes through our heart. And the intellect then can support that and go looking for ways and finding information and uh, validation. But it has to live in the heart too, or the vision for our life is not really happening and not complete. So this is the first Sunday of the fall Dare to Live the Life You Came to Live program. And the theme this year is Souls on Fire. And I was speaking about it a little bit last week to kind of give us a tee up for it, that souls on fire are those that have punched down into the sacred well or down into the the infinite uh spring or or oil well you know where the gusher comes up it requires no effort on our part to have that fulfillment come through us but we do have to punch down into it we do have to open into it and make the space for it to come through us and then we are filled to overflowing. So that's what Souls on Fire really is about. And today I am talking about the soul afire with passion. So I want to make a distinction about what I mean when I use the word passion. Because there is a negative connotation to the word passion in which it means lust and jealousy and control and a feeling of unworthiness. So that whatever it is that we're trying to control is never completely trusted. And sometimes we associate that with passion in movies and literature and so on because it sells movies and literature and so on. But so uh, that, is, that kind of passion is how can I guarantee that I get what I need? All right, I'm talking about a different kind of passion. I'm talking about the passion that emerges out of love and devotion and yearning for the beloved, for the divine. The kind of passion that, when we tap into it, fills us with energy and creativity and inspiration and action that comes out of that. It is a joy that spills over into service and also into a sense of appreciation 
of what's around us and what's within us so that it becomes a, a contributing and an enhancing and a living from the place of plenty rather than a getting and consuming and never being quite satisfied. So instead of how can I guarantee that I get what I need, it becomes how can I add energy to what wants to happen here? How can I become a contributing factor that causes what wants to happen here in the good to expand and grow and be powerful and be irresistible in its goodness? How can I contribute to that and enhance that? So we're opening into the question of a life of meaning. And a life of meaning is one that taps into that place and recognizes that we're not here to try and produce all alone inside of ourselves the energy and enthusiasm to be who we came here to be, but rather to surrender and allow what we are to be revealed and then to find ourselves tapped into that flow so that it can come forth through us. Now I want to share some interesting uh, ways in which this sh has shown up because it flows through all these different spiritual traditions. You've probably heard that Jesus said at one point, uh, they asked him what the greatest commandment was, and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the first and the greatest of commandments, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard that, right? If, you're, if you were raised in the Christian tradition, you've probably heard that. He was quoting Deuteronomy. So in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Metaphysical interpretation, there's only one, right? Love the Lord your God. Love is the first invitation, the first command, the first exhortation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart first, with all your soul, with all your strength, these commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts, in your feeling, love in all ways. And remember this, impress them on your children, it says. So pass it on. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Make it a practice. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So. In, in the Jewish tradition, they wear a phylactery that gets bound on the arm. There's a binding on the forehead. They put the, um, um, what is it called, at the door. No, uh, I'll think of it. But the, it, it sits at the door frame. You touch it when you go in and when you leave. So they, they made a literal reminder out of it. Metaphysical interpretation, though, let your thresholds in consciousness Oh, this is on the door frames. Uh, in your, on your hands and on your forehead. Love through your sacred service. Love in your thought. On your doorposts, welcome those who come and go from your house. Let your thresholds in consciousness welcome the love of the infinite in all. The namaste consciousness. So from this consciousness, I might imagine, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, and, he, qu and it, he is quoted in all the synoptic gospels as saying some version of this. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in fact, in several places, in some of them, it's repeated that he says this. So clearly it was meant as important, but what's the essential message here? It's about the heart 
and its connection to the infinite source, right? When we, uh, when we go to the Sufi tradition, Hafiz says this to us, a hunting party sometimes has a greater chance of flushing love and God out into the open than a warrior all alone. In other words, there is something about community that allows us to open in a particular way. And you can feel it when we sing together, when we listen to the music, when we pray together, when we're in sacred service together, when we're in classes together, that it opens and helps sustain something in us that allows us to invite or consider the presence. It's around us all the time, and yet we yearn for it. Somebody give the example, it's like the pearl in the closed-up oyster shell wondering where the water is. And the shell has to open for the pearl to discover where the water is. It's the same with us. We're immersed always in divine presence, but we have to open to discover that it's there all the time. So we're looking at this passion as something that motivates our, our desire, our yearning, to tap into that sense of home that we all know. You know, you can't yearn for something that you've never had. There is some part of us that knows and recognizes that we have been deeply connected to the one, to the source. We have been at home in bliss and delight in the one, somewhere, sometime. We know it. We miss it. We want it. We look for it. We try to find it in work, in relationships, in income, in sports, in intellectual pursuits. And we can find some flavor of it everywhere that we look because it is everywhere that we look. It's not missing in any of those places. But the one place that is the hardest to find it is the place where it's most likely to be the most fulfilling, and that's on the inside. The door of the soul opens outward from the inside. So we want to come back into alignment with the soul that is afire with passion in that way. Arabia, uh, who is the most uh, popular and influential of the female Islamic saints and a central figure in the Sufi tradition, was born nearly four, 500 years before Rumi. And she grew up in what is now Iraq. And she said this, Would you come if someone called you by the wrong name? I wept because for years he did not enter my arms. And then one night I was told a secret. Perhaps the name you call God is not really his. Maybe it's just an alias. I thought about this and came up with a pet name for my beloved I never mentioned to others. All I can say is it works. The invitation to make God or the, the mystery, the great spirit, Fred, whatever you want to call it, to make it personal to you. You know, Reverend Helen Street, who used to be in Hawaii, she's, she's gone on uh, into the next life, but she used to refer to God as Big Sweetie. That was her endearment for Big Sweetie. I thought that was great. Uh, Ernest Holmes said it this way, your union with God implies your union with everything that lives. 
Do not be afraid of this. Do not shun the thought of it. Divine union means union with everything. Dare to lose your small affection, and you will find it increased and multiplied a million times through greater union. You cannot plunge into the waters of real life unless you take everyone else in with you. The universe is one system. You know, we don't think of Ernest Holmes as a passionate person, but he was. He loved life. He loved people. He loved food. He loved conversation. He delighted in it, all of it. And so if we could expand our space just a little bit personally, we expand our lives into that greater sense of passion. So we have two questions really this morning. One is, what opens us to that? And the other one is, what sustains us in that? And so next week, you're going to be receiving these beautiful posters for Souls on Fire, which is going to be going for the next eight weeks. I wanted them today. The printer had another idea. <laughs> but what I do have today is the beginning of what we're going to use with those posters. You might remember this from last year. We have both an affirmation and a commitment. And this is an affirmation about passion and a commitment that says, my soul is a fire with passion. Now, you might wonder about making a commitment to your soul being a fire with passion if you feel like that's not your personality, you're not that kind of person, but I'm here to tell you it's already true about you. It always has been the truth about you. It just wants to be revealed more. So uh, let's see. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to give some of these to Amanda. I'm going to give some of these to Wendy, and I'm going to give some of these to John. These are the affirmations. You all want one of these. And we will use them shortly together. And I'm also going to give you the, the little uh, commitment card. Uh, if you need a pen... Um, look around for a neighbor who's using one when we get ready to do this and snatch it <laughs> when they're finished with it. So let's think about this. What opens us up to? What opens us up to believing in the passion that's within us? What opens us up to living from the passion that's within us? I have another Nazrudin story to share with you about this. Because one of the things that, what we want is, you know, what happens is you are, and I am, inspired when we're um, relaxed, when we're attentive, when we're curious, when we're engaged, thank you, Wendy, when we're engaged in a non-attached way so that we're open and available. Then we can receive and take in and respond and be alive to what is happening. But sometimes we make assumptions. And sometimes we are attached, and sometimes we're attached in a good way, and sometimes not so much. But our assumptions can get in the way of what's really happening. Has that ever happened to you? Nasruddin found this to be true. He says, the bus was crowded when the little old lady got on, and Mullah Nasruddin stood up. And she pushed the mullah back gently and said, no thanks. Nasruddin tried to rise again, and she pushed him back a second time. No, really, I'm fine, she said. And finally, on his third attempt to stand, Nasruddin said to her, Lady, please let me get up. I'm already two stops past my, my, uh, my stop already. Two blocks past my stop already. 
So when we make assumptions, we sometimes don't see what's actually happening. We make an interpretation and it gets in our way. In order for us to be open to the passion, we need to sometimes see what our assumptions have been and then set them aside. Humor is one thing that can be helpful. We want to have an available heart. So opening to what's around us can make the heart available, and appreciation is the best way to do it. By noticing what can I appreciate in my life at this moment. Maybe the best I can do is to say, I don't have a cold. You know, some days that might be what it feels like. Start there then. You know, work your way from that place. Start as simple as it needs to be in order to find things you can take hold of. Well, I love the way that the trees are turning red. I love the sight of those red leaves contrasting with the green. It's so beautiful. I love seeing the sunshine in the sky still here in September. I love seeing this room full of loving people. There are so many things. I love it that my chair is reasonably comfortable and holding me up so far. You know, all of these things are things that we can appreciate. Now, also, I want to hand out the affirmation or the, um, the commitment card, which is just a place to sign and your name and date it for today. Today's date is the 16th of September. So before we actually do these, I want to talk a little bit about what what sustains passion? So I would bet that everyone in this room has felt passion. Everyone has felt it. And sometimes we go to some kind of a, a retreat or an event and we feel so great. And we go, this is where I want to live. This is where I'm going to stay. And the next weekend we go, where did it go? You know, uh, we used to say we, we come back from these retreats and we hit the pavement, you know, because we, um, we come back into real life. And we're not sure how to sustain that enthusiasm in real life. Did everybody get one of each? Okay. So what we want to do then is recognize that it's not so much a matter of sustaining it like we're standing on tiptoe all the time, as it is a matter of reigniting it. Reigniting it. We want to renew and refresh it, right? We want to draw from the well again. We want to get that spark going again. So at the end of October, I'm going to be offering a one-day retreat at the Rosemary Heights Retreat Center in Surrey. I'll give you the date next week. I'm, I'm confirming everything right now. It'll be from 9 to 4, and we'll, we'll have the registration and all that available for you uh, next week. But this is an opportunity to take one day to go inward into devotion to God. It, we'll do prayer, we'll do meditation, we'll do visioning, we'll do singing together. And we will create together in that one day a retreat from everyday life to renew, restore, replenish, and tap into together that place of refreshment, that wellspring of abundant passion. Renewal and refreshment are one part. Another part of sustaining or bringing it back to us is the opportunity to have reminders. Sunday morning can be a reminder of this. Our prayer, our meditation, our sacred 
practices can be reminders for us, and community, as I was sharing earlier, can be a sacred practice that reminds us. So we're offering Science of Mind classes, and I invite you to consider not only the benefit of the material, as it might apply to your life, but the benefit of being with your spiritual community, with people who are also doing the same kind of work that you're doing, to wake up on the spiritual path, to evolve, to delight in what's so. And also, we want a shared heart. There is something about the shared heart that becomes so powerful and so opening for us. And I want to share a story with you. Um, this looks daunting, but I'm not reading all of this. Uh, this is in part a love story, not about a man and a woman, not about a man and wine, not about a man and money, country, truth, not even God, although it includes all of those. It is about a man who learned to love himself and in doing so found himself on the edge, a place he likes, and in a world of children, especially those on the edge. Dick Grace, head of Grace Family Vineyards, the first cult Cabernet Sauvignon producer in Napa Valley, is an enigma. He's a former Marine, yet he's a student of Buddhism. He doesn't make his wine, and he does not even drink it. Yet his Cabernets, since the first vintage of 1978, always sell out, and single bottles of his wine have fetched as much as $100,000 at auction. He has carved a singular path out of the splashy lifestyle around wine galas and recast wine auctioning into a different stage. In a sense, he has revolutionized philanthropy, or at least turned it on its ear. If cynics say winemakers host lavish fundraising parties and then, oh, by the way, take out their checkbooks to throw money at charities because it's good self-promotion, then this man says, wine is the catalyst for healing the planet. Grace admits he's lived a charmed life. A football player, marine captain, and a senior vice president at the investment company Smith Barney in San Francisco, he happened upon the vineyard that now carries his name. In 1983, Grace began producing his own wine at Camus, and by 1987, he had his own winery and a state-bottled Cabernet. Currently, Grace Family Vineyard sells to 435 customers and keeps 4,000 on a waiting list. We make the amount of wine that other wineries evaporate, he says. <laughs> when disease struck and the first vines were ripped out in 1994, Grace planted the new vines even more closely at 3,400 per acre. That's six times the standard at the time in Napa Valley and three times more than Grace started with in 1976. The vineyard has always been organic and is now biodynamic and hand-picked. It's one of Grace's hallmarks that he aims high and risks high. I like risk, he says. It explains Grace's spiritual journey. Chance plays a big role in his successes, as he tells it. But he recognizes stress as the quality that lifts what is ordinary and extracts out of it something extraordinary and rare. Inner stresses transformed Grace himself, and stress in others lifted him out of the desire to help them. Grace lets loose with a high volume of words, gifts, stories, and promotional materials as soon as you meet him. One is a watch whose face includes the motto, Be Optimistic, 
The why is perhaps cutesy in the word mystic, but intentional and Gracian. He also shows snapshots of the Tibetans he has met and helped. Those snapshots tell of the human spirit shining under stress. The man, who is a cross between Bob Barker, Billy Graham, and someone else who's hard to pinpoint, was transformed through the test of life. By the early 1980s, Grace was depressed and dependent on painkillers prescribed for a football injury. He also had an alcohol problem. Calling on what his wife Anne labels a ramrod hard will, he joined Alcoholics Anonymous and has stayed sober for 16 years. As a vintner, dabbling in charity fundraisers, he attended an event in 1988 that gives terminally ill kids their dream wish. In Alabama, he befriended Anthony Frazier, age nine. He, Grace took Anthony to the zoo and for the next six months called him once a week until the boy died. Grace delivered Anthony's eulogy. That was his epiphany. I was a drunk and I needed a reminder, he says. Anthony was that reminder. I kind of felt I deserved this place. I built it. Then it dawned on him that his winery is a gift and should be used wisely. By 1988, Grace fashioned an intense spiritual path of giving that rode on his business savvy and connections. Depression, alcoholism, and children are his teachers, he says, adding, my gurus come from unusual places. Grace bombards people with an infinite store of tales of those who have touched him. In addition to Anthony Fraser, there is a nine-year-old he calls John Karma, whom Grace found lice-ridden and abandoned in a handbasket off of a trail in the Himalayas. Grace refused to leave him, cleaned him, and eventually found him a home. Like dozens of boys and girls he has met, Grace is committed to bringing John Karma to college in this country. Dressed neatly, as you would expect of an ex-Marine in a polo shirt, Grace wears Tibetan beads on a string around his wrist. I need reminders of this world, he says. Otherwise, I'm going to think Napa Valley is the real world. It seems he is succeeding. Although Grace gives speeches in a neutral, almost military tone, when he tells the stories of Anthony Fraser or John Karma, he tears up in almost each telling. Since his retirement from Smith Barney four years ago, Grace makes three trips a year with Anne to the Himalayan region, traveling three to four months a year. There are those who say that Anne, married to him for 45 years, is what grounds Dick Grace and makes all he does possible. They are building a mobile hospital for the Himalayan region for $250,000, which he never forgets to tell you is what a few bottles of auctioned wine can make. The Grace's three grown children and their families participate in harvesting the grapes on the property. Son Kirk is the vineyard manager, and all of them support outreach programs in their communities. Taking himself to the cradle of Eastern spirituality is not his only aim. Grace has taken anyone he can hook, from cocktail waitresses to CEOs. On the next trip to Tibet, he has already invited the principals from several Silicon Valley firms. I take people into the wilds because they can't come away unchanged, he says. People can do so much with so little. What I sell for a bottle can clothe, shelter, feed, and educate one child in Nepal for a year. To date, the Grace Foundation supports causes in Nepal, Tibet, Mexico, California, Hawaii, Alabama, Illinois, and Pennsylvania. The FaceTime that lies at the heart of Grace's own giving feeds his voracious energy. Impatient with inefficiency, 
he does away with bureaucracy and runs the Grace Foundation from his desk at home. Along with writing checks, he holds lepers in India. He befriends teenagers in rehabilitation in Napa at Our Family, Inc. And he visits and maintains relationships with cancer-stricken children at Family House in San Francisco. The directors and teachers of those private projects in Napa and San Francisco all attest to his endearing, genuine genius with children. Says Christina Lehman, a teacher at Our Family, they sit and listen to Dick, and they will not even move. They just know he tells the truth. It doesn't matter where we've been or where we are now, as much as it matters what we are opening to, what we are allowing to move through us and be expressed in the world, be passed on in the world. This man has a particular mission that fuels the passion of his heart. It doesn't mean that all of us need to go off to Nepal or pick children up on the street, but what it means is that each one of us has something within us that wants to be brought forth and expressed. For artists, it may be creative expression. For writers, it may be their books. For business people, it might be running their business in the best way with the highest integrity they possibly can. For doctors, it means being present with every patient and listening. So for each one of us, the passion that enlivens us is what makes each day meaningful and worth living. And it's already in us. So what I'm inviting you to do this morning is to commit to what's already within you. And so I'd like to invite you to say with me the affirmation that is on the card that says passion. And then you're going to take this home and save it. Because next week when you get your poster, you're going to stick this on your poster. So passion. I am a master artist of the spirit. Passion leads me to create a wonderful life. And a wonderful life is that life of meaning, which is not about what I can get, but about what I can enhance, what I can empower, what I can grow and bring forth. And so if your soul is willing to be a fire with passion in that way, I invite you to sign this little card and date it September 16th. 2012, that's today. And we are going to collect these along with the offering. So all together, they will go into the offering baskets because this is another kind of offering. We're going to receive all of the gifts at the same time. Now, we're not quite there yet. Last week, I introduced a song to you, Souls on Fire. How many of you were here for that last week? Good, because we're going to need you this morning. Um, what I told you last week was, uh, isn't true. Um, what I told you last week was that we were going to sing it with the recording again this week, and then once everybody had really learned it, we were going to start singing it, and uh, Michelle and Bill would uh, play and lead us, and we would all sing it together. The universe, you know how I said the printer had a different idea about the poster? The universe had a different idea about the music. The CD has vanished. <laughs> I have the case. The CD has vanished. 
And so as we're, I was saying, oh, we're going to uh, wing it or give it up this morning, and, and Bill said, we can do it. We can do it. We're ready. We can do it. As long as, you, as long as you're willing to sing, I'll sing. Michelle can sing. I can play it. We're going to do it. So bear with us. We're going to want you to sing it with us. This is pretty fast. And here are the words. Let me read them to you because this is important. This is like, uh, yes, it's on the lavender sheet in your program on the back side. Souls on fire. Now here are the words. Listen to me first before you start reading it. Right? Because once you start reading it, you're going into your intellect. I want you to listen with your ears because that goes down to your heart. I just made that up. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> it's the power. It's the presence. It's the joy that moves me. Light and glory pouring through me as my soul takes to the sky. It's the power. It's the presence. It's the love that moves me. Light and glory all around me souls on fire. And then the chorus is, the light of God guides my way. I see the truth and I am home. The love of God melts my heart. The power of God burns in my soul. And then we sing the second verse again, and then there's a little do-do-do-do, and then we sing from the beginning right through again, and then there's a little do-do-do, and then we sing the second uh, verse with the tag on the end at the bottom. Is that clear? It's really clear. It's really easy. We can do it. Can't we? Okay. We're going to do it. All right. That's it. Okay. Here we go. It's the power. It's the presence. It's the joy that moves me. Light and glory pouring through me as my soul takes to the sky. It's the power. It's the presence. It's the love that Light and glory all around me. Souls on fire. Souls on fire. The light of God guides my way. I see the truth and I am home. I am
It's about 100 degrees in here now. You may be seated. That is it. That is it. I may have to disrobe. This is really good. Shoes off, coat off, the whole deal. So for those uh, of you who are buying the CD, or are for those of you who will be receiving it on MP3, now I'm speaking to people in the United States who are going to be getting this as a recording, you will hear me singing uh, on this CD. Uh, louder probably than you need to, and I apologize for that. Um, but but it's you know my heart's in the right place. Okay, so I want to just wrap this up this morning by saying this little thing about Jacqueline Dupre. Jacqueline Dupre was a famous cellist. She died tragically of an illness, but her passion as a cellist was astounding. And this is a story that Ben Zander, who is the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic, told. He said, I met Jacqueline Dupre in the 1950s when I was 20 and she was 15, a gawky English schoolgirl who blossomed into the greatest cellist of her generation. We played the two cello quintet of Schubert together and I remember her playing was like a tidal wave of intensity and passion. When she was six years old, the story goes, she went into her first competition as a cellist, and she was seen running down the corridor carrying her cello, remember she's six years old, carrying her cello above her head with a huge grin of excitement on her face. And a custodian, noting what he took to be relief on the little girl's face, said, I see you've just had your chance to perform. And Jackie answered excitedly, no, no, I'm about to. This is being a fire with passion, and that is the truth of who we are. Namaste.